how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Monty Whitebloom never planned to be a filmmaker, studying English lit at university. He was actually sucked into the rave movement in London. While making shorts, he started making videos to play along at rave clubs. The unusual journey led him to work with a sound system, Soul to Soul. Eventually, he started making music videos for people like Duran Duran, Seal, Paula Abdul, The Spice Girls, Lauryn Hill, Madonna, and The Rolling Stones. This led to advertising, and eventually he was asked to read the script for Love is Blind. In the new film, a woman with selective perception who cannot see her mother is prescribed by her psychiatrist to spend time with a special man, but she cannot see him either. In this interview, White Bloom talks about storytelling across different mediums, his unique approach to capturing scenes, why he makes music playlists for all of the actors, how he surprised Matthew Broderick on set, and how to best collaborate with the composer. If you enjoyed this interview, join thousands of viewers for the new YouTube video essay series, also called Creative Principles. I never planned to get into filmmaking. It was purely a mistake. Uh, and I, I still feel today maybe it's a mistake. Um, and I should have continued the route that I was going to do, which was um, in English literature. Um, that's what I studied at university, and then I went on to do a master's in American literature. And... I thought, that's it. I'm going to be living, you know, as a uh, great writer. And then I realized that basically I was a terrible writer. Um, and so I'd have to think again. And, and this kind of coincided with the advent of the whole rave movement in London. So there's suddenly all these kind of raves all started and there would be these huge parties all over the country. And they needed um, to have projections on the walls. You know, they just had to say everyone could kind of like dance out and go crazy. And I was always making kind of like short films on my own and stuff. And I knew someone and they asked me, could I do it? And I ended up doing that. Um, and uh, I started working at a, um, various clubs and stuff all over the countryside. Um, and it became bigger and bigger and bigger. And I thought, this is brilliant. I've got a great job. This is a fantastic job working at nights. Brilliant. Get paid great loads of money. Don't have to pay any tax. And then basically one of the clubs I worked at was called the Africa Centre, which was in Covent Garden. And it was run by this band called Soul to Soul. And they were just a sound system. And then they were decided they were going to release a record. And they said to me, hey, you do these projections and stuff. You know, do you fancy doing a music video for me? And I was like, what's that? And they were like, you know, it's just a music video for the... I didn't even know. So I ended up making their first music video, and it became a massive hit, worldwide hit, back to life, all over the world. And from there, suddenly, I left literature and my great hopes of being the great English uh, writer behind and started working in music videos. And so I started working in music videos 
in the late 90s and then went into the noughties doing every, you know, basically everyone from Lauren Hill to Madonna to George Michael to the Rolling Stones and did loads of music videos for everyone and I loved it and, you know, music was very much part of my background and then that segued into advertising, did lots of advertising for kind of Levi's and Nike and all these things and that's when I started to get back to, I suppose, what I used to do at college, which is my own little art movies. So I started doing little art movies again, little kind of stop frame stuff, a lot of kind of like stop motion. And even in the movie, there's some stop motion in the movie because it's something that I really started with. And um, then started doing a few short films. And then this movie came about. And I was um, uh, through Lucy Barzen, you know, who sent me the script and uh, said, would I be interested in doing this film? Did you see things start to kind of merge together? Like you were studying literature, but then you're making these videos. I mean, there's definitely some storytelling there, and, and cinema and TV has gotten so great over the years. Do you kind of see these as all one S, one thing now? Absolutely. I think it's kind of, you know, I think that all of these things, one bleeds into another. You know, everyone talks about now content. You know, that's the kind of like buzzword of the day, you know, about everything being content. Well, really, content is entertainment. You know, like, in a way, content is even above entertainment. It's all content. And all of these things bleed into each other. You know, and so this kind of storytelling can be storytelling from a book, or it can be a painting, or it can be a piece of music, um, or it can be a short film, or an advert, or a TV show. And I think you're right. I think all of these kind of now blend into it. So I was always very much plugged into wanting to tell stories, but I suppose it took me a while to find the medium that I could execute that in, you know, that, that I could actually do that in a way, and hopefully in a way that, and with Love is Blind, hopefully in, in, in a way that still merges lots of different forms. So it's not just, here's this traditional story which goes ABC, that there is a sense of it being, like Virginia Woolf said, you know, you know the kind of stream of consciousness, this idea that you move between time and some and even though we're speaking now at the same, same time we're speaking i'm thinking about i've got to get that washing out of the lawn you know got laundry and i've got to do this and i've got to do that and so your your mind wanders and you play your lots in lots of different places at the same time and so and i think that's true of storytelling i think it isn't just a linear thing i think it jumps around all over the place and i think uh, those are the kind of stories books paintings music films that i really admire and love do you see some aspects of story changing as well. So, so I'm, I know you um, had a script here, and it was kind of a typical sense. But like a few years ago when they made Mad Max, there wasn't really a screenplay for that movie. They just kind of followed storyboards. Coming in from music videos, do you kind of see that as a different aspect of storytelling? Yeah, I think that kind of, you know, you definitely are, you know, although there was a tight script for this, you... I thought about the script in very much scenes and very much in tableaus, in what I thought, what was the most important thing about this scene? What did I want to convey with this scene outside of the dialogue and, 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 and how the story kind of you know, unfolded? What did I want to convey from this scene which suddenly took you somewhere else, gave you some kind of feeling? And that feeling might just be a smell or a colour or a sense. And so that kind of sense of that whole mise-en-scene of that, vision was really important per scene. So that's very much how I thought about the film originally, you know, going around, <clears throat> it was all shot up, up upstate um, New York, around Hudson Valley, and going around just, um, you know, looking at all the scenes and choosing locations and scenes, it's all shot on location, choosing those scenes that I felt would, you know, inhabit um, these actors and inhabit the story and bring it to life and, and, and bring something to the story. 
Is there an example from the film where you like, how did you dictate some of those fillings to your cast? Like I've heard like Ridley Scott would like show a painting to someone to talk about an emotion of a, a shot. Like how did you kind of, um, you know, express those ideas to your cast? And if there's any scenes that come to mind. Yeah. Well, well I suppose part of that came from, you know, coming from music is that I made um, music playlists for all of the actors. So all of the actors, even the very minor actors, made them, you know, a dozen songs that basically were their favourite songs. These were their favourite songs, their characters' favourite songs, and these were the songs that kind of inhabited their kind of like world, you know. And so that, to me, began the kind of groundwork of like them understanding who they were, what their personality was. And then from there, for the main actors, then, you know, sent them, you know, various ideas of the kind of films, even though they weren't the characters they were, but the kind of films and even some of the paintings and photographs that I loved, um, uh, of certainly kind of the American West and a lot of like William Eggleston, like photographs of uh, when he was photographing when he first used his ectochrome and stuff. And I sent those to Chloe and Matthew and Aidan and Shannon and, and Ben. So they had a sense of these were important touchstones in them. You know, they could be, you know, I said, these might even be family photographs. Even they were photographs of, you know, from famous photographers. These were images that touched them, that they were important to them. And so that was how I tried to make them, feel, you know, inhabit their characters. Well, it sounds like you definitely did a lot of preparation, but what were some of the difficulties you experienced, um, or maybe some of the differences between making shorts and music videos versus making a full feature? I think that probably it was summed up, you know, brilliantly by Matthew Broderick, um, on the, uh, we only shot with him for three or four days. And on the fourth, then we shot him right at the beginning because he had other scheduling kind of issues. And, you know, I, I realized it was a very tight schedule and, and I wanted to shoot it in a way that didn't require lots of takes. And I, I wanted it to be very much, you know, fluid. And, and, and for me, you know, literally, if it's in focus, then we could use it. You know, so we were shooting with Matthew and then as he was leaving, he said, oh, you know, this is a great experience, really enjoyed it, la-di-da. And he said, and I've got to tell you, you know, it's a, quite experimental how you've been doing this filmmaking. And I was like, what, what, what do you, obviously, Matthew, you've done so many movies. And I was like, what do you mean experimental? He said, well, there was so few takes. And I said, yeah, well, I, I just thought we had it. He said, well, probably I'll see you on the reshoots. And then got in his car and drove off. And I, and I, and I was like, oh, my God, I haven't got enough footage of Matthew. I obviously don't know what I'm doing. But... You know, obviously we didn't do any reshoots, but uh, it was kind of just an interesting, my perception of how to do it and his perception was obviously, he, he felt it was a very unusual kind of uh, circumstance that there was so, you know, we didn't do take off to take off to take at all. What's kind of the different mindset there? I know Clint Eastwood does something similar where he just kind of does one or two and he doesn't even change many first drafts of screenplays. Like what are, are you just so prepared beforehand, you're confident and you can get the shot or, or what's kind of the missing piece there, you think? I, I think one of the great things that we had the opportunity to do on the film was that, you know, and it was only because I didn't know any better. And so maybe there's something really great about not really knowing per se how to make a feature film. You just make a film how you think you're meant to make a film is that, you know, I wanted to be able to take the cast to the locations and do run-throughs of their scenes actually at the locations rather than rehearse for them just in a kind of dry studio. I wanted them to see where we were really going to be. And because I knew they were pretty much all New York-based, that we could do this. And so we spent three weeks before the shoot at all kind of going to these locations and just 
going through. So they really had a sense of kind of like the space and the blocking, and we spoke about it then. So I knew that if we did that kind of prep, when we came into that actual shooting, where suddenly you've got more money involved, and actually they loved it. They, they said it was great that they felt they could do this, and it was something they'd love to do all the time. Um, and, and so that when you were there, actually with the whole film crew, you're not, you know, relying, and it's costing money, you're, you're relying on lots of takes. So we had a kind of sense of who they were and what they were going to do, you know, before we ever came to the, the set. And so I think that that, you know, that was just a bit of kind of groundwork, which was really, I did it for me more than I did it for them. But they, the actors, they found this as a great, um, you know, great starting point for them to work from. Do you think your kind of experience as an editor helps with that too? I've heard some other director slash editors say that, you know, too many shots actually gives them less options because they've got, they don't like it for some reason. Do you think you, do you see things that way as well? Definitely. I mean, I think kind of my experience of doing kind of editing and, you know, and I photographed the film as well. So it was kind of, a, you know, which was a bit of hubris at the time thinking, oh, yeah, I'll shoot it as well. And it ended up being obviously a huge amount of work, but I think that having that experience in different departments, in the editorial department, in the camera department, meant that I was very, I knew exactly what I wanted. And I didn't, and I was never going to shoot a movie with, like, coverage. I was never going to shoot, here's the master, and then here's the reversal, and here's the, I never did anything. Everything was like, okay, we're going to do this scene, and it's just going to be from one point of view. Or we're going to do this scene, and we're going to, like, focus it just all as a single take. And so, and try to kind of make each one of those scenes slightly different and have a different kind of like feeling um you know for to make it more entertaining and more visceral i suppose but yeah for sure editing and that you know i think that kind of having shooting every single angle you know which i've done obviously in the past with things shooting loads of angles because you're unsure of how it goes together can cause huge problems when you get into editorial because well it, it, you end up using one or two for shots and you've shot seven and you've spent all day doing one little thing um, do you have any advice or any any advice for coming up filmmakers who are about to make their first film or any advice you wish you had before you got started? I would have thought, lo- I mean, there's loads of things I would advise uh, and there's loads of things I wish had been advised to me, but I think that, you know, you can only do it like you see it. You can only do it how you want to do it, you know, and it has to be what you imagine rather than what anyone else imagines. But for sure... You know, just do as much prep as you can. Like, and I don't mean prep and over-analyzing or telling actors stand here and then stand there and stand there because that, that's not me. I mean, I know you mentioned Ridley earlier, and that's a very Ridley kind of like you stand there, just say the lines. I didn't, I didn't, I don't really work like that. I'm much more. I give them the character, you give them the background, and then they inhabit the character. They ask me questions, but basically, you know, when we're on the shoot. I'm just there inhabiting this world and I'm filming it. So I think do the prep. You know, do as much prep as you can, get a sense of, you know, other sense of what your film is. And, you know, I think that, you know, one of the most trickiest things currently in kind of like filmmaking, certainly, you know, theatrical filmmaking, is, you know, having an audience. And, like, I suppose, think about who your audience is, you know, and, and I suppose that a lot of the film is as much about the marketing and selling of the film as the film itself, you know. And I think that they're things to think about, the management of the film, uh, you know, to young filmmakers and probably to myself. Do you have any advice for people that are making short films and they want to create a certain tone with music, but they can't get the rights of that music? Do you recommend them searching for something different, creating their own, or how can they kind of build this emotion without having all these rights to different big songs and things like that? 
I think that, you know, obviously I've done loads of like stuff with, we used lots of different music originally when we first did the move and we ended up with a, a kind of combination of needle drops and also a com- combination of composition. But like Matthew Halter, who composed the music for the film, he'd never done a movie before. And so we chose him because we thought he'd be really interesting and he would be really cheap uh, and he could do it. So I think that for, for a starting out person making short film, Find the music that you really love or the style of music and then go. There's so many musicians out there who want to do, do music and then give them that piece of music for them to interpret that or expand on that. And they'll do it for nothing. I mean, now the, it's the greatest moment, I suppose, for creativity is that you have access to so many people via the Internet, via social media, who are just trying to do exactly what you're doing. And you don't have to rely on just famous pieces of music because there's amazing composers out there who is but you have to know you have to be very clear about what the brief is you know i think that giving a giving a, a young composer uh i want you know, can you do this piece of music but you you don't know quite what you want i think drops it's like where do they start so they have to have some sense of structure some sense of this is where you want it to go and they may take it in a totally different direction and you know for the movie matthew took it in a totally different direction for what we originally thought so I think that that's, that would be my best advice. Thank you for tuning into this show. If this is your first time listening, please log on to iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a rating. Providing a rating or sharing content is one of the best ways to help the series grow. Make sure to also follow or like us on your favorite platforms like Instagram, Facebook, or the new YouTube series we've started. And check for daily updates over at creativeprinciples.live.